Let's open up together now to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're actually going to be looking at just one verse this morning, but I want to read more than one verse to, to begin. Reading from Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, thank you for this precious treasure that you have given to us, that through your word we can hear you speak perfectly, we can know our God, that by your spirit working through your word you accomplish your supernatural purposes in our lives, causing blinded eyes to see and deaf ears to hear, and yes, even that which is dead to live transforming your people into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that, that your word, by the power of your spirit, would accomplish all of your good purposes this morning in us. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I was planning on um, returning to Romans this week. Uh, but there were a couple things uh, that made me change my mind. One is I'm going to be gone next Sunday because we're moving Hannah down to Florida uh, to college uh, next weekend, and I thought it was kind of a weird breakup of the passage if I was going to skip a week in the middle, so I chose not to do that, but also just thinking as we've come to the end of this year, especially as we've come to the end of 2020 and seen all all the things people are posting and things we're seeing on On even the New Year's Eve uh, celebration, we caught about 10 minutes of the final right before the ball dropped, and it was just all about what an awful year 2020 had been. Really made me think that we're living in a time of pretty unprecedented anxiety and fear and frustration. Not, Not perhaps unprecedented in world history, but in our lifetimes, unprecedented. The levels of anxiety and fear and frustration are so high We don't need to go through the whole list of all the things. Uh, A year ago at this time, we were just starting to hear talk of this strange virus happening in China. We all know how the world has changed since then. Between this coronavirus and the government's response to it, 
a very contentious election. We're hearing rumblings from some sectors throwing out the words civil war every now and then. Political unrest and protests, riots. Many people, and surely some that are here this morning, are feeling stressed and overwhelmed. Some are fearful. Some are just frustrated and angry. And in times like this, when we're living in a time like this, when we ourselves are feeling these things and experiencing these things, where do we go to find assurance? Where do we go to find hope? What brings calm to our worried or our frustrated and angry souls? And the answer for all of it, for the ones who are afraid and for the ones who are angry, the answer is we can turn to one beautiful doctrine that Scripture teaches from start to finish, the doctrine of divine providence. And we will find their peace. We will find their hope. And that brings us to, I really want to just focus in on the one verse here, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, which tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what I want to focus on this morning because there's hope there. There's peace there. There's rest there. It's an amazing statement. Think about this. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is an incredibly strong statement on divine providence. Providence might be a word you've heard thrown around a little bit. Certainly, uh, we heard it from our founding fathers when this nation was being established. We hear it. We don't always think about what it might mean. Well, Ephesians 1 verse 11 gives us the perfect example uh, of a definition of this. It is God working all things according to the counsel of his will. The counsel of God, it's referring to these plans that God has made in eternity past, before the foundation of this world, for every single detail of history. And when we see this word here in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things. That tells us something very important about God's interaction with history and everything that happens in it. It's what theologians call meticulous providence. God is sovereign over everything, all things. There's, there's nothing that falls outside of that. He has wisely, and we better remind ourselves, perfectly decreed whatever it is that comes to pass, such that nothing is outside of his control and absolutely nothing is without purpose. The late, great R.C. Sproul says, there are no maverick molecules if God is sovereign. If God is sovereign, then there is not even one molecule in this entire universe that is out of order and out of place. That is the inescapable reality of what Paul says here in verse 11. But the question is, does the rest of the Bible agree with this? Because people want to kind of glance over some of these statements that get made and said, we just aren't going to think about that. We're not going to talk about that. Does the rest of the Bible really teach that God controls all things? And the answer is a resounding yes. And I want to, it would be completely impossible for us to just walk through all of the biblical evidence for the sovereign rule of God over all things. We couldn't possibly cover it in one morning. Um, the, the evidence is overwhelming, but I want to just look at a couple examples um, and really look at just a couple of the categories that we see in Scripture that, that tells us that God is in direct, meticulous control over these things. And these are just a few of the categories. The first is God controls all things in nature. 
Psalm 147, verse 8. He covers the earth, the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. So God is the one that brings in clouds. God's the one that determines when it will rain, when it's not going to rain. God is actively causing the grass to grow. God is providing for the animals. He is determining who will eat and who won't. So somewhere in a climate much warmer than ours, there is a lion that hasn't eaten for two days, and he is looking at a gazelle right now, and God is the one who will decide if that lion eats or that gazelle lives. That's what the psalmist is telling us here. Psalm 29 says he determines when it will thunder. Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus says that God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. In Joel chapter 2, verse 25, we see God controlling plagues. Everything in nature, we could go on and on and on with biblical examples under God's direct control. Second, God controls world leaders and world history. This is good news. This is encouraging, by the way. Job chapter 12, verse 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. This is God doing this. God controls all the actions of every leader on the planet. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We, we see these statements in Scripture indicating to us that it's God the Father who's controlling every single decision made by every single ruling authority in the world, and there's great comfort there. There is great comfort for us there to know that, that these things that are happening, especially some of them as we look at our government and we go, what are they thinking, these people? None of it has thwarted God's plans. None of it has, has overruled God's sovereign judgments. Third category, God controls Satan and demons. Again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul doesn't say that God is working most things according to the counsel of his will. God is working the good things according to the counsel of his will. Or God is using the actions of good people and, and good spiritual beings according to the counsel of his will. No, God is working all things. All things according to the counsel of his will. That includes Satan's actions. Martin Luther said that the devil is God's devil. He's, he, in other words, he's not a free agent. He doesn't just get to do whatever he wants whenever he wants some Christians live in fear of the devil, live in fear that the devil might do something to them or demons might do something to them. But what we see in Scripture is these are not free agents who can just do whatever they want. In the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, we see Satan asking for God's permission before he can afflict Job, and he can't lay one finger on him beyond what God allows him to do. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus says to Peter that Satan has asked to sift him. Satan had to ask God's permission to try and separate Peter out, to try and, and ruin Peter's faith. And he couldn't do anything to Peter without the direct permission of God. Again, this is encouraging. Fourth category there, and God controls all the details of your life. God controls the blessings and the hardships of our life. Job chapter 1, again, verse 21 
Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job is saying, all the things that have come into my life, the good things that I can identify, they seem obviously good to me, and the things that seem obviously bad to me, everything, all of it comes from God into my life, and God is good. God is faithful in whatever he has given me, whatever he brings to me. Now, I've heard people quote this passage and say, Job was wrong. So that statement's in the Bible, but Job's actually wrong in what he is saying here. This is, this is betraying a lack of faith on Job's part. You'll hear that from Word of Faith preachers. Uh, there's a church not too far up the road from us who I heard the pastor pull this verse out and make this exact argument that Job is wrong here, that this is a lie. The problem with that is it doesn't just end in Job's statement. Verse 22 includes an author statement. In all this, Job did not sin or charge, charge God with wrong. So if Job was lying about God, saying, God brought this evil my way, then that, that next statement can't be included in our scriptures. Job was not wrong when he said, God, you brought this my way. That verse is included to let us know what Job said was true. Everything that had come into his life had come directly to him from God, and all of it was for his good. God was faithful in all of it. God planned and controls all the days of your life, secondly. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalmist is saying here, in eternity past, God had planned every single day of his life, every single day of your life, which I find incredibly encouraging. That fills me with peace. That fills me with hope to think that God has, has planned out my life, that these things that catch me by surprise and, and knock me off my feet and knock the wind out of me, that God is still sovereign in all this. God is still good. I can trust that. God controls salvation. As we read from Ephesians chapter 1, Starting in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, verse 4 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We see this throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, God specifically chose his people Israel. God chose Abraham and not any of the other wandering pagans of his day. God chose Jacob and not Esau. God chose Israel and none of the other nations. And then the New Testament takes that language on, that language of, of choosing, as we just saw in Ephesians 1. In fact, the word grouping for this choosing, for, for election, words like elect, election, choosing, chose, predestined, occurs 38 times in the New Testament with specific reference to God the Father choosing someone to be saved. Would we all agree that if the Bible says something 38 times, we should perhaps stop arguing against it? That it might be good for us. There might be something good in that for us to know that. God controls birth and death, and everything in between. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills, and the Lord brings life. 
He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. God even controls the seemingly random details of our lives, which again, I find incredibly encouraging. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The, the casting of lots is, was done in several different ways, but it's similar to the roll of the dice. That's, it's, it's chance that is making things happen, so-called chance. And this proverb says that even these seemingly random decisions, the most random decisions we can think of, are under the sovereign sway of Almighty God because he controls everything. God controls your decisions. Proverbs 19, verse 32. Many are the plans in the mind of the man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 16, 9. The, man, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. We all make plans, we all make decisions, but the Lord directs all of them. A fifth category then. God controls the evil actions of men. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Many of you are familiar with the story of the Exodus, and you know that throughout the account of the Exodus, we see these two statements being made sort of back and forth. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. So one of the things we take from that is at no point did God force Pharaoh to sin. Pharaoh, every step of the way, did exactly what he wanted to do, but that's not the only thing that's going on. It's also true that every step of the way, as Pharaoh did what his wicked heart wanted to do, he was following step by step the predestined, predetermined, foreordained plan of God. Joshua chapter 11, verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites and the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction, should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So just as the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh in order to destroy him. So here in Joshua, he hardens the heart of the people, and it says here, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed. Does your theology have room for that God? Because if you say, no, 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 the God I worship, he would never do that. Let me just tell you, that's a different God than the one the Bible reveals to us. Genesis chapter 45, Joseph says to his brothers that their sin was ordained by God. He makes this amazing statement in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He uses the same word for the sinful brothers and for God. In order to show who it is that is prompting the action here, he says to the brothers, you meant it for evil. This was your intention. This was your decision. You had thought through this. You had a plan, and you meant it for evil. You made a choice, and you acted on it. But then he uses the same word, and he says, God meant it for good. God had a plan, 
and acted on that plan. Friends, if we would, if we would wrap our minds around this, there's such encouragement there. There's such hope there, living in an evil world with evil people. To know that nothing is outside the sovereign sway of Almighty God. Sixth then, sort of a summary statement. God controls all things in the universe. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over all, over all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ, right now, at this very moment, is actively upholding every single atom in the entire universe. That's how much he's in control. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We all know and love Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. You hear how many times in scripture, and we're just, we're just scratching the surface. These examples that are using all-inclusive language. This is inescapable. There's nothing outside of this. Paul says here in Romans 8, 28, this verse we all know and love. We know this. We know that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. How can we know that? How can we know that all things are working together? That all things are working in unity for our good? How can we possibly know that? There's only one way we can know it. We can only know that if God controls all things. If God is not sovereign, this statement is not a promise. If God is not sovereign, he can't promise us this. It may or may not happen. This is misguided wishful thinking on Paul's part to make a statement this strong. If God's not sovereign overall. But friends, God is sovereign. God is sovereign and there's such Comfort here. Charles Spurgeon says, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow on which to lay your head. I find that to be so true in my life. I like what Baker's Dictionary of Biblical Theology says. It says, simply put, providence encompasses every aspect of the created order from beginning to end, from heaven to earth, from animate to inanimate, from individuals to nations, from hours to ages, from weeds to wheat, from birth to death, from catastrophe to calm, everything is within the loving presence and involvement of the Heavenly Father. Everything is within the loving presence and involvement of the Heavenly Father. Think about it this way. If God controls anything at all, he has to control everything because all of history is being held together by this thread of billions and billions and billions of details and decisions. What if Hitler had stayed in art school? There would have been no World War II. It's just these little decisions that connect everything in the world, and if God is not in control of all of it, he wouldn't be able to assure that he could accomplish any of his sovereign purposes. His hands would be tied by his own creation. His hands would be tied by the will of his creatures. God would just have to do the best with the cards that he had been dealt. Does that sound like God to you? 
But that's the outcome of that kind of thinking that elevates humanity to this place that can thwart God's plans. Oh, but that's not the God of the Bible. What if Joseph's brothers hadn't sold him into slavery? What if Pharaoh would have repented and not let the Israelites go? Or, and let the Israel, just let them go? What if Pilate had called a halt to the unjust trial of Jesus Christ? What if those sinful men hadn't crucified him? What if they'd worshipped and followed him instead? Well, as much as we like the thought of that, they wouldn't crucify him. Instead, they would fall at his feet in worship. What would it mean for us? It would mean that every single one of us was going to hell. That's what it would mean. Because Christ wouldn't have gone to the cross to atone for sin. So it's worth noting that although this should be an immense comfort to us, this notion of God's sovereignty, this notion of, of his meticulous providence and all that he has made. In fact, I can think of no other single doctrine that brings as much peace and hope and confidence and joy as this one. Although that's true, this doctrine of God's meticulous providence is not a popular one. Not at all. People do all kinds of textual gymnastics in order to avoid dealing with the mountain of biblical texts that either clearly teach this directly or by implication point to it. There's no other way that this statement could be true. You yourself might be aware of that because you feel that way too. You might be thinking if God controls all things, that raises some serious questions for me, some serious objections. Maybe you have stopped listening to me pretty early on in this sermon, and you're just blankly looking at me, thinking about lunch. Maybe your inner lawyer has been making objections so loudly that you can not even hear my voice anymore over the sound of you winning the argument in your head. Maybe that's going on with you, but now's the time to re-engage because I want to address the two big questions that people have with this. And friends, again, this isn't a point of some theological minutia. This is where hope lives. This is where peace lives. Two primary objections. They're, all, they're, they're always the same. Question one, if God controls all things, doesn't that make God the author of evil? Let me make a couple brief statements and then illustrate them from scripture first. Number one, the Bible clearly teaches that God controls all things. We have looked at just a couple of texts. It's, it's, it's a, a couple of snowflakes on top of the iceberg that we have looked at this morning. Second, the Bible clearly teaches that evil is the result of sin. Evil is in this world because people break God's law. When the first human sinned in the garden, all creation was cursed and twisted and plunged into sin, bringing about moral evil, the sinful things that, that men and women do, and natural evil, hurricanes, black ice on the highway. Third, the Bible clearly teaches that God never does evil, and he must never be blamed for evil. God always only acts righteously. He has only done what is right. He has only done rightly. Evil is always blamed on sinners, never blamed on God. Sinners are always responsible for their sinful actions. And God never forces anyone to sin, ever. 
Fourth, the Bible teaches that God uses secondary causes to accomplish his purposes. Here's what this means. God is in control of good and evil, but his control of good and evil is asymmetrical. It's not exactly the same. In other words, he's not exerting the exact same kind of energy in both cases. God directly controls what is good and indirectly controls evil, yet is still in control of it. In other words, sin, not God, is the primary blame for evil, but God uses secondary causes to bring about his will. I'll illustrate that in just a second, much more fully. You might be a little confused. Fifth, the Bible clearly teaches that God uses evil to accomplish his good purposes. We saw this with Job. We saw this with Joseph. We saw this with Pharaoh. We saw this with the children of Israel. We see it most clearly in the cross of Christ. Acts chapter 2 Verse 22, Peter says to the Jews in Jerusalem, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What's Peter saying there? In this momentous occasion, the day of Pentecost, this massive crowd has gathered around, and here is his moment to get up and preach the gospel. And what does he preach? The murder of Jesus at the hands of lawless men, the rejection and execution of God in the flesh, the second person of the triune Godhead, by those whom he has made the greatest evil that has ever happened in the history of all of eternity. And Peter says, God planned it. In eternity past, God had a definite plan to have Jesus delivered up to lawless men in order that he would be hated by them and killed by them. That was God's plan, and he ensured that it would happen. Is God evil for doing that? Well, you better answer no. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, Peter prays then, For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. It's inescapably clear here in the cross of Christ. God in eternity past planned to have his own son murdered by the hands of wicked men. And so in order for him to accomplish that and ensure that, what did that mean? Think through the steps of a, so, so we know that that's true. We've read that many times and we're grateful for it. We know that God wasn't gambling on the roll of the dice, how people might respond on whether any of us would be saved or we would all be doomed to hell. But we don't always take the next step and say, so what does that mean? How did God ensure that? Well, here's one thing it meant. God had to raise up people to do what he had ordained. What had he ordained? That they would hate Jesus, that they would reject him, that they would despise him, that they would murder him. And yet we see clearly in the words of, of Peter, who, who gets blamed for that? Oh, it's not God. God's not blamed for that evil. Peter makes it clear. God is using secondary causes. He is using sinful men to do what he has ordained. 
These men did what they wanted to do every single step of the way, just like Pharaoh. They did what was in their hearts to do. Their actions were were the products of their own wicked hearts. So even as God predestined in eternity past their actions, he didn't make them sin. He didn't twist their arm and say, you have to do this. They did it. That, that, That was the result of of their wicked hearts. This is the exact same principle we see illustrated in the story of Joseph. God uses Joseph's evil and jealous, sinful and murderous brothers, the desires of their heart to save Israel from famine. How does God save Israel from the famine? By having the brothers throw Joseph in a pit and sell him into slavery and having a whole chain of wicked and evil things happen to Joseph in the meantime to finally get him in the place where he's able to direct the affairs of Egypt in such a way that they stockpile a lot of food and Israel is able to be saved. God was in control of that whole process. But if we just lift one thing out and look at it, we go, this is evil. God would never. He would never do this. No, friends, we don't see the whole picture. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says all these, in all these passages, it's very clear that Scripture nowhere shows God as directly doing anything evil, rather as bringing about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. Moreover, Scripture never blames God for evil or shows God as taking pleasure in evil. Scripture never excuses human beings for the wrong that they do. All right, so... Is that hard for you to wrap your mind around? How how can God be in control of all things? All things, and yet not be responsible for evil. Not be guilty of the evil that happens. Not be the author of evil in that way. Let me just relieve you a little bit. Of course it's hard for us to wrap our puny little brains around this. Of course it is. Shouldn't we, though, expect a little mystery in our theology? It's so easy for us to fall into this thing of like, I should understand 100% of everything. I think I do, in fact. So if I hear anything that challenges me whatsoever, I'm like, well, that is wrong. That is not the way. Because I do understand. I can remember as a young man, young preacher growing up in the charismatic movement where we thought doctrine and theology was useless and got in the way of the Holy Spirit, and I genuinely believed I would know what was right from what was wrong just by hearing it and my gut reaction. Turns out, (laughs) that was not correct. Shouldn't we expect some mystery I mean, we're trying to understand the nature and ways of the God who spoke 150 billion galaxies into existence out of nothing by the power of his word. As best we can tell, the universe, and whatever the smart people call it, it's just still expanding. It's just still going. That's the God we're talking about. Of course we're going to encounter some mystery If we think we ought not, if we think we understand everything, then we are presumptuous and arrogant. We're talking about an eternal being who is omnipotent, who is all-powerful, who is omniscient. He knows everything, actual potential, who's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time, who exists in triune glory. We can't even quite wrap our minds around that. We're talking about a God who is awesome far beyond our wildest comprehension. And we have got two awful little poodles 
that live in our house. But they're actually able to figure out quite a few things, these little creatures. They, they recognize certain words, or if not the words, at least tone of voice, uh, and, and they know what it means when you say these things. But, but try, just imagine if, if you might sit down with them to explain the inner workings of an iPhone. Let me just explain this to you, how this works, or space travel, or, or the plot of the Star Wars franchise. If we're sitting watching the Mandalorian, and I say to the poodle, now let me just give you some backstory. It would be ludicrous to think that it would be possible to have any kind of intelligent conversation with these animals, and yet the difference between us and Almighty God is far far greater than the distance between myself and these two poodles. They have a better chance of understanding every single thing that I know than I do of knowing everything that the infinite, all-wise, almighty creator God knows. Perhaps some humility is in order on our part. Question number two. If God controls all things, do we have free will? This is a biggie for us. Depends on how you define free will, is the answer. We do have free will in the sense that we all act according to our strongest desires and inclinations. We always do what we want to do. Furthermore, we have free will in the sense that we make real choices that have real consequences. In other words, we're not, we're not aware. We don't feel God constraining our choices as we make decisions. We're not robots, we make real choices, and we will be held accountable for our real choices. Yet, God controls every detail of our lives. There's a compatibility here. We, we cannot thwart God's plans, because what would it mean if we could? It would mean we were God. That's what it would mean. So we make real choices, but God has ordained those choices. and In fact, he has ordained them before the foundation of the world, God's sovereign control of all things is somehow mysteriously to us compatible with our real choices. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly how this works. There is mystery here, but if we deny God's control of all things, we have stepped outside the bounds of Scripture. And if we deny that humans make real and willing choices, we have stepped outside the bounds of Scripture. So we just have to submit ourselves to what Scripture says, even as it holds for us some tension and some mystery, and we can't fully understand it. But I ensure you, if you will embrace what the Bible says about God's meticulous providence, you will find comfort there. There is much comfort to be found in God's astounding wisdom and power. Again, this is not some little point of theological minutia. Maybe you're still sitting here because I know this is different. We're usually just working our way through books of the Bible and you're thinking, what are we even doing this for? I, I want to tell you that the doctrine of God's meticulous providence is one of the most practical doctrines in all of Scripture. It is one of the most practical things that a Christian could, could come to understand and embrace. How is that the case? Well, number one, because trusting in divine providence will help us survive trials. Life is full of hardships and trial and pain. All of us are in the midst of a trial of sorts right now. And what's been going on over the last year or so in our nation? 
How does understanding providence help us in our trials? First, it reminds us that God is in control. He's not just in control of the universe. He's in control of my life. He controls the whole world, but he controls the trial that you're in, friend. And we know that God is infinitely powerful. He can do whatever he wants to do. Nothing is wasted. Nothing falls through the cracks. Better yet, we know that this all-powerful God who's controlling all things is infinitely good. We need only look at the cross of Christ to see that. The cross of Christ where God took the greatest evil act in all of eternity and turned it into the greatest act of good. If God can do that with the greatest evil that ever happened, then surely he can use the events of your life for your good and for his glory. Next, trusting in divine providence will help us to stop worrying. We all worry. We might not all worry about the same thing. Some worry about their health, or you're worrying right now about the health of your loved ones. You're worried about the economy. You're worried about the government overreach. You're worried because you keep hearing people say the word civil war. You're worried about pleasing your parents. You're worried about keeping a spouse happy. It's easy for us to give in to worry and fear and anxiety, but if we believe, really believe, that God is good and that this good God is in control of all things, then we of all people should be the least worried people in the world. When we worry, we are saying something about God that is not true. We're either saying God's not in control and so I must worry, or he's not good so I must worry. Both of these statements are lies about God's character. When we are anxious, we are sinning. We are dishonoring God, and we should repent. And we all become anxious. But we ought not wallow in it. We ought to let what God has revealed to us in his word tell us how to feel. Tell us what to think. Next then, trusting divine providence will help us stop complaining Again, the current state of the world we are living in has given us many reasons to complain. And complaining seems like a very little sin. It's not really a big deal, right? We all do it. We complain about 2020. What a just a terrible, bad, awful year it was. Nothing good ever happened. God might have been napping during 2020. We complain about our governor, our politicians, our police. We complain about anyone who disagrees with our understanding of what should be done with face masks. We complain about our friends and our family. You might have a list of complaints from this morning's church service. We have a never-ending list of things to complain about. So why is complaining so bad? Because again, when you complain, you're making a statement about God, Christian. You're saying either God's not in control So I need to complain because this thing is outside of his plan. Or God's not good, so I need to complain because he's not been kind to me. If you want to know how serious complaining is, just read the history of Israel in the Old Testament where because of their complaining, God killed thousands of them. God takes complaining very seriously because when we complain, we're saying things about God. We don't usually think of it that way. It's the truth. 
If God controls every detail of our lives and is working all things for our good, then we have nothing, literally nothing to complain about, ever. A complaining Christian is an oxymoron because we believe that God is sovereign and we believe that God is good. What's there to complain about if those two things are true? But again, we're all guilty of this. I'm certainly guilty of this. This is not a message of condemnation. This is not an angry finger pointed in anyone's face. This is a message of hope. Oh, that we would believe, really believe that we would put our trust in divine providence, in the God who is sovereign, in control of all things, who does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, the way he wants, and he never has to ask anyone's permission. That God. We would put our trust in him. And that sovereign God who is good, faithful, and righteous in all that he does, who's working all things for his glory and for the eternal joy of his people, all that we would put our faith in that God, the God that scripture reveals to us. Let me just close with the example of William Cooper. William Cooper, the great 18th century hymn writer, we we sing one of his hymns, Love His Hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He was a man who suffered with severe manic depression. It got so bad that he was in an insane asylum at one point. Eventually, he was released from the asylum, but he spent his entire life battling crippling depression. And not just severe depression, but he also suffered a broken heart. He was never able to marry the woman that he loved. So Cooper lived his life with a broken heart and depression. He was very close friends, by the way, with John Newton, the writer of the the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton actually saved Cooper's life when he tried to commit suicide, something that happened on several occasions. One of the ways Newton worked to keep Cooper alive was he said, let's write a book of hymns together. And uh, Cooper was a, a poet, and he and Newton worked together, and that's where some of these great hymns have come from. But Cooper's suffering caused him to hold tightly to the doctrine of providence. One of his best-loved poems is a beautiful treatment of providence written during a particularly difficult season in his life, actually written for that book of, of hymns that he put together with John Newton in 1773. Let me just read you in closing a couple of these verses. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, he rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy. and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. William Cooper persevered in life in the midst of tremendous suffering by holding on with both hands, by by clinging for dear life to the doctrine of divine providence. And brother, sister, you can persevere too. You can persevere too through whatever trials you have walked through already. You are walking through whatever lies ahead. Friends, there is hope here. There is peace here. There is comfort Here, and as we go into this new year, I could think of nothing more valuable 
after coming out of this year that was filled with so many with such turmoil, than to call us to trust in this God. This God who rules over all things and is faithful and just and true and good. We just read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 one more time as we close. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you, Lord, that you rule and reign over all that you have made. You are the almighty God, the sovereign God. Lord, that you have not left things to just play out as they might, but instead you have meticulously been involved in your creation and in each one of our lives individually. And Lord, we can't always understand it. We can't always wrap our minds around how that works. Things that have have happened in our world and in each one of our own lives that have felt so bitter, so difficult, that we have a hard time seeing that you could be involved in any way. But Lord, would you cause us to trust in you then in those times? Cause us to lift our eyes to you, the author of our faith, the finisher of our faith. Cause us to trust in you beyond what our eyes can see and our minds can comprehend, what our feelings would tell us. Lord, let us stand in faith on the truth of your word and by your spirit, Lord, would you convince us of these things that we might have hope, that we might persevere, we might be faithful to you in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would cause each one of us to trust in you. And I pray particularly for any that are in this place that are not trusting in you, Lord, they've, they've run from you, that, that you would gently, by your spirit, call them to yourself, save them, cause them to trust in you, to put their hope in you, and that they would find in you such joy and peace that comes in your salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.